Broadcasting from Youngstown, Ohio, this is the MV Red Podcast, the show where we talk about news and politics impacting the Mahoning Valley, the state of Ohio, and the USA. If you want to subscribe to our podcast, find us on your favorite podcast streaming app or visit our website, www.mvred.com. If you want to share your opinion with us, please email info at mvred.com, as we would love to hear from you. Now, let's get things started. Here are your hosts, Michael Metzinger and Dane Davis. Hello, and welcome to the 10th episode of the MV Red Podcast. This is a very special episode because on today's episode, rather than just uh, recording audio. We're going to live stream this on Facebook, so this is very exciting. So we certainly appreciate everybody tuning in throughout the next hour as we talk the coronavirus. As most of you know, uh, my name is Michael Metzinger, and joining me is my co-host once again, Dane Davis. So Dane, you uh, this was your idea, so I want to thank you for it. Got a lot of positive feedback. A lot of people were excited, so uh, what are your your initial thoughts on uh, our first live stream? Well, I, my first thought is that you look really intelligent with those glasses. I, I want you to finish my uh, taxes or something. You know, you you look very high IQ. Um, yeah, I thought that we could milk the coronavirus for all it's worth by uh, shamelessly self promoting ourselves by doing a live stream, right? Everybody else is doing it, so uh, why not us? Yes. No, I agree. So. What we're going to encourage everybody to do is we already got a batch of questions that we're going to discuss over the next hour. But throughout the, the episode, by all means, if you want to ask us any questions or if you want to vent or in the case of my brother, Christopher, if you want to troll, uh, go, go right ahead. I'm sure there's going to be plenty of, uh, of my, whether it be my brother or my cousins, brothers or cousins making fun of me. Um, but I'm ready for it, so I don't mind. So, first question we got was from my brother Tom, and he actually. Oh, go ahead. Actually, I don't mean to interrupt you, Michael. The first question we got was from Kurt Black. Oh, okay, uh, Dane, where are your glasses, buddy? <laughs> uh, my my glass. I don't have my uh, my glasses are upstairs. I'm wearing contacts. Um, actually, fun fact: I got into a car accident around six months ago. And the glasses got scratched up, the lenses, and I haven't replaced them yet. So I've been using uh, contacts exclusively, um, but they're upstairs. Oh, uh, we got another quote. Why would anyone ever make fun of you? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. They, they shouldn't be making fun of us because uh, this is some great, wholesome family entertainment that everybody's going to be able to enjoy over the next hour. So question that we had that earlier came in from my brother Tom was, <coughs> so we just had a stimulus that was passed, um, actually kind yeah. of two. There's the Family First Coronavirus Relief Act, something like that, and then the bigger one, which was the CARES Act, which incorporated the stimulus payments of $1,200 per person, $500 per child that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. It also had a lot of provisions for businesses that are looking, um, that are struggling right now and have some capital, some loans that can be forgiven. So my brother Tom asked, should be, there be an additional stimulus to help the economy? And if so, how that should be funded. So I'll, I'll throw that one at you, Dane, to start out. 
Um, so I, I just want to back up because that's a, that's a good question, but let's just back up and talk Corona, right? Let's go back to basics as they like to say. Um, I think, and this is a very controversial opinion and I'm going to put it out there. And if I get flack, I get flack. I think there has been a massive overreaction to coronavirus. I think that, you know, I, I think that the models are wrong. The models were predicting, and, and granted, we're still in the middle of this, so this is a bold call, right? And I don't want to minimize anybody dying. It, you know, I'm not trying to say that, like, oh, who cares? It's not my point at all. But I do think that if you compare the original models, right, and the data and what they were saying, and you compare those models to the revisions and where we are now, I think it's important to take a step back, right? In America, we accept as a society that people die. Um, people die every day for a bunch of different reasons, some natural, some unnatural, right? We you murder, car accidents, uh, cancer, um, you know, people trip and fall. People die all the time. People die of influenza. I'm not saying this is just the flu, by the way. I, I'm not a doctor. I'm not trying to say that at all. It, we know that people die, right? And we know that as a society, we accept some level of death, right, in exchange for liberty. If everybody were just quarantined in their homes 24-7, Nobody would, would, would like get into a car accident. Nobody would get sick. We'd all just be completely isolated, okay? When coronavirus first emerged and the Chinese lied to everybody, that's another thing we're going to get into. There's a lot we got to get into. I, I don't want to ignore Tommy's question, but it's, there's a lot to say. The argument was we have to quarantine, right? Because we have this curve. And the reason why this curve is important is not because people die, right? It's because the hospital system would collapse. And if the hospital system collapsed, not only would the people infected die, but people, you know, having nothing, you know, nothing to do with Corona would die as well, right? And the whole idea was we had to take that curve and we've gone flatten it because here's our hospital capacity. Here's the spike in cases and hospitalizations. And we've gone to flatten that curve right below the capacity. That's why we all went into quarantine. Now, if you read these models very carefully, the ones that are being used by, the, by the, the various state governments and federal governments to justify the quarantine, they all predicted a mass surge in hospitalizations, not death, and this is crucial, hospitalizations. Um, they predicted this mass surge, right? And the governors, DeWine among them, I think acted very prudently. I, I think that they were right to call for a quarantine, right? But as we're getting data, it's clear that the reality on the ground it is nowhere near what was originally predicted. And it's not because, well, we're all social distancing and therefore we flatten the curve and therefore it's a success and we have to social distance more. It's because those models assumed 100% effective social distancing on the local level and the models were wrong. And I don't think people fully understand the economic consequences of this, we're looking at like a 30% collapse in GDP, the, the greatest collapse in GDP of all time. And it's not just baby boomers with their 401k that are going to get infected. You're looking at a massive surge in unemployment, all because of erroneous models. And I understand the initial call for quarantine. I support it. I think Governor DeWine was right. I think we should be quarantined now. I think it was a prudent action. But it's amazing to me how people become so personally invested in the call to quarantine that any idea of like lifting it or kind of like pulling it back a little bit, or maybe the models were wrong and we were completely overhyping this. And I think it's more severe than the flu. Don't, I'm not trying to say it's less lethal than the flu. I think it's a more severe strain. Anything, if you make those points, 
people say you want grandma to die and all you care about is GDP. And I just think it's shocking, right? How people have adopted such a, a singular mindset of like the quarantine is the whole purpose of this. So I, I know that's a bit of a rant and I know that's a spicy start to this, but I thought we, we'd start spicy. No, I, I think those are excellent points. And shout out to my brother, Tom. Well, I'll share this in the Facebook live chat, but um, shameless plug for him. He's been doing a great job of, he has a Google spreadsheet that can be shared and it has a bunch of great data on the state of Ohio and a lot of uh, more so counties in Northeast Ohio and some of the larger counties in the state. I think he's tracking about 11 or 12 counties and he's got some really interesting charts on there. But the, the, the major theme that I'm seeing in all of these charts is that the number of cases is certainly leveling off in the state of Ohio right now. Whereas right. when you hear Dr. Amy Acton and Governor DeWine, when they talk uh, in their daily 2 p.m. press conferences, some of the charts that they're showing make it seem like this is still going sh like a, a straight up in the air when it's really not. And so I'm gonna share those um, charts that my brother Tom has been putting together. Yeah. But now the US, it's still going up at a fairly decent clip. But when you look at Ohio as a whole and the counties that my brother has listed here, clearly shows that we're leveling off. Now, I, I'm of the belief that DeWine and Acton and Houston are talking in a certain way because they don't want us to get overly, um, I don't know, calm, I guess we'll say calm with, with things and go back to not social distancing. And then things could spike up, which I agree with. Uh, but I do question some of their models where they're stating that we might not reach a peak till late April, early, early May, because right now from the numbers we're hearing every day, you know, they're talking about maybe 10,000 10, cases a day or something like that. I think the numbers been thrown out there. I think today alone, we just had 300 new cases, which obviously isn't good, but it's certainly nowhere near 10,000. So I agree with you. Uh, I'm, Perhaps, at least in the state of Ohio, the early actions by DeWine and Acton are paying off, which is a great thing. But I think yeah. they're going to have a major struggle to continue to institute these bans and the shelter-in-place policy past April 30th or May 1st, whatever it is, if these numbers are holding steady or the chart shows that it's starting to come back down. I mean, I think let's let's go back to first principles. I, 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 first of all, I want to say outright, I think DeWine made the right call. I think Amy Acton, DeWine, and John Hughes said, I think they've shown strong leadership, not only in the state, but nationally. Um, I feel, I know people from across the political spectrum have said that they are glad DeWine is in office. And I completely support the call to quarantine, right? Because think about the initial scenario. What facts were they confronted with in March? In March... We didn't know the true infection rate. We didn't know the true lethality. People were dropping dead in, in Italy by the hundreds every day. And the idea was to act out of abundance to caution. And I completely understand that. And I'm not faulting them for that. I'm not criticizing them for that. But once the quarantine is call, called, right, it's a policy. Every policy needs an objective. What's our objective? Our objective is to flatten the curve so our hospital system does not become overloaded based off of this model, right, that predicted this. The model was wrong. The re we have more data. It's coming in. 
at a certain point, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but at a certain point, hopefully soon, um, the quarantine needs to be lifted. Here's what concerns me. It's not the call for quarantine. It's not the initial reaction the first few weeks. It's the group that are now insisting that we have to quarantine until June or July and that we have to permanently change our entire lifestyles um, and we can have periodic quarantines uh, you know, on, the, for, uh, on a regular basis for no aim in sight with no goal. I mean, these are immensely destructive actions, okay? Not only to the country and to the economy, but to, to the social fabric. And I think if you want to call a quarantine, if you want to extend it, not necessarily call it, but extend it, you need a clear goal. The reason why we're extending it for four weeks is because hospital capacity is here and it's projected to go here. But if your model gets updated and it's projected to remain under capacity, then you shouldn't be calling a quarantine. And I, I hate how there's this, come, this, this unfalsifiable thesis. And the unfalsifiable thesis is we need to social distance and quarantine to flatten the curve. If the curve is flatter than expected, well, that's because it's working and we need to quarantine further, right? You're damned if, you're do, you, if you do, you're damned if you don't. No matter what happens, there's this call for an extended quarantine. And I, I think it's, it's creepy because it's, it's creepy because, again, it's not the initial call for the quarantine, but it's people are ratting their neighbors out. People are saying, like, somebody goes for a walk and they call the cops, right? Uh, somebody went surfing on the beach. No way you could spread disease surfing on the beach. The police, the police called him. Um, I mean, there's all these little like Gestapo like uh, police state stories that are popping up, and I think the vast majority of people aren't doing it. But it's it, it, it scares me that we have, in a sense, acted a police state in the United States, um, perhaps a justify justifiably so, but without any sort of end goal in mind. Right? When it, I have no problem saying it's an emergency, we need to act. But eventually, we should be able to define when that emergency ends and what we've achieved with it. That, that's my point. I don't know. Maybe I'm being a little hysterical, but I, I do think it's, it's kind of it's scary. And, and we do not know the economic consequences. Yeah. So you brought up a good point about the end goal. And, and you had discussed this in our previous episode. People are going to become agitated. Um, they're not going to they're going to lose their patience with this. If, like I said, the numbers start leveling off, coming down, and the doom and gloom, the worst case scenarios that were being presented to us to, I guess you could say, justify the acts of governments from the federal government to the 50 states across the country to, to justify those, uh, if those predictions, those models don't pan out. And so you hear that this is, this. I believe the Surgeon General... Uh, U.S. Surgeon General said this week would be like our Pearl Harbor, and, and I haven't seen all the numbers quite yet, but it seems like there has been some positive numbers coming out uh, from certain spots, especially New York City, which is number one without question in, in the country and arguably in the entire world right now in terms of cases. Uh, I, I believe the death number was quite high today, but the number of cases and the number of of individuals going to the intensive care units was down, which is an encouraging sign. So I believe D Governor Cuomo had said that they thought they would be hitting their peak around this week. And, and like I said, if you look at that data from my brother Tom, it certainly looks like Ohio is at its peak right about now as well. Um, so we'll know for sure, I would say, in the next 
10 to 14 days if that's the case. But if it is the case and we start seeing these numbers come down, they're going to be very hard pressed to, they're going to have a very hard time to continue shelter in place and some of these other things. But I guess the question is how, how do you open up society again? Do you do it with um, certain industries or do you do it with certain age ranges? And do you have any thoughts on that? Who knows? Who knows, right? Like these quarantines, when they were called, and again, I understand the reason why, and I support the reason why, but there was never an exit strategy. It reminds the the whole war on Corona reminds me very much of the war on terror, right? And it was somebody that was a big advocate of the war on terror, and I think it was a disaster in retrospect, because once we got into Iraq and Afghanistan, 20 years later, we're still there. What do we define as victory, right? What do we define as victory over Corona? No more cases? Well, that's never going to happen. It's, it's, it's loose, right? Um, there's no clear definition. There's no clear quantifiable metric for when we say no more quarantine. We're lifting the quarantine or we're letting the economy go back. There was no weighing of the costs and benefits, right? Um, okay, here's the costs if we don't quarantine versus here's the economic cost. We don't know. We're just kind of spitballing this. And, you know, to your question, how do we reactivate the economy? I really have zero idea. I can say this. This is where I'll talk with what I know. I know that banks are very strong. The financial system is holding up pretty well uh, to date. It could change, but so far I'm not worried about banks. Banks have a lot of capital. They have a lot of liquidity. Uh, they seem to be doing well. So the banks are good, which is different from 08 where the banks were threatened. So that's good news. Um, I'm sure the industrial economy, once you stimulate demand, that'll turn back on, right? Making widgets, making steel, making products. So I'm not worried about the industrial economy or the manufacturing economy. Where I am worried is the complete service sector of the economy. You know, two-thirds of our GDP are services. Restaurants, uh, hotels, uh, stadiums, uh, all of this. How do you get people shopping again? I don't think people go back right away. I mean, I think if tomorrow if they were lift to quarantine, I think people are so freaked out, right? Young people who are not at risk from this are so freaked out that they're afraid to go back. I don't know how you turn all that back on. You can pump all the liquidity into the system that you'd like. And I just think that there's going to be serious demand destruction. And we're looking at a very, very severe recession. I hope I'm wrong. I, I really do hope I'm wrong. And you know, the economy bounces back and people keep going spending, but I, I just don't think so. I, I think we're looking at um, some deep scars from this for a long time. So Tom's question, um, I mean, do you, well, I guess my, my res first response to this question is, and the question was just for everybody tuning in, should there be an additional stimulus to help the economy? And if so, how you should fund it? I think it's maybe too early to tell because the CARES Act is the biggest. It's what nearly $2 trillion, I believe. And that's the one that has the individual payments, which from what I'm reading, it sounds like those with tax returns that had refunds direct deposited in the past, they might start getting those issued in the next week or so. And then for others, they might issue paper checks by early May. So I think it's far too soon to see that impact on our economy. The other thing would be with businesses. So much of my time as a CPA the last week has been dealing with the implications with these pay paycheck protection program loans that are essentially a means to keep 
allow businesses to keep their employees employed for the next eight weeks. And by doing so, if they do so, the loan is forgiven by the Small Business Administration, which it's, it's a great program on the surface for that reason. Um, so we don't know that impact. And then there are also additional SBA loans. There's these economic, I think they're called economic injury disaster loans. You can get like up to a $10,000 advance. Another thing that could be forgiven, um, not having to be paid back. So I, I think it's far too soon to really know if we need an additional stimulus. I know there's talk of it, but I, I think you kind of kind of see maybe by mid-May, June, early June, where the economy is at that point. We'll see where the markets are, how businesses are doing, and uh, that's my initial thoughts on that. So there, there's a couple issues, right? There's one is liquidity. Um, Dane is a worker. I work at a restaurant. I make money through tips, right? I lose my job. I stop spending. I only pay the most basic uh, bills like electricity, water, uh, and heat, right? The, the stimulus efforts to date solves that problem. We can just give Dane money. He's lost his job, but he'll keep spending, and he'll keep that going. The bigger question, in my opinion, though, is the shift in consumer demand, like a permanent structural shift, not just a temporary blip because I don't have liquidity, but all of a sudden I stop going out to eat. All of a sudden I start cooking meals at home, right? I'm afraid to go to a restaurant. All of a sudden I stop going to concerts. Um, I was going to take a cruise. I canceled the cruise. Uh, not me per se, but like the hypothetical consumer, right? And all these huge shifts in consumer spending. Now, over the long term, that's fine because if they shift, if consumers shift their spending, right, supply will reorient and it'll be fine, right? But in the medium to short term, that's the big problem is we've created such a panic that we could potentially see the complete destruction of entire industries, right? I actually think the restaurant sector was pretty bloated going into this. I think it was boosted off of millennials not having kids. Uh, and having disposable income. And now I think that they're starting to make children and settle down. And I think restaurant spending was already looking to peak, but this will only accelerate. So that's the big question. I don't know. I'm not coming here with the answers and saying, I know what's going to happen. I honestly don't know what's going to happen. But if you're in an industry that was based off of like frivolous consumer spending or luxurious consumer spending, I don't know what you do now, right? That's, that's the mm -hmm. big question. Um, do we need more stimulus? We probably will. Um, depends on how long these quarantines go into effect. How do we pay for it? Listen, money doesn't matter. You know, the one thing I've learned in my 30 years is that it, the American national debt and the deficit doesn't matter. It, it just doesn't matter. I used to be so concerned about that. I, I wanted to balance budget. But it, it, it so typically, right, in macro theory, I'm not going to go too deep into this, but if I'm a country, if I'm, uh, you know, Spain, and I spend a lot and I run a big deficit. The theory is it crowds out private investment, interest rates grow up and people can't invest because it's too expensive to get money. Or interest rates are zero right now. Oh, well, we have lots of debt. Okay, so what, right? Or, well, we could eventually go bankrupt. Well, we'll just print more money. I mean, I know that sounds very flippant in that, but I, I've seen, in all the time I've been alive, I've seen no downsides to deficit spending. I mean, maybe one day the bill will come due, but it seems to me like if the world demands America pay up all of its debt, well, then great. We'll, seek, we'll sink the entire financial system. And I think everybody knows that. So it just it keeps on going. Um, so I, I, we won't pay for it. There's your answer. 
we're not going to pay for it. Some Japanese pensioner who's saving all their income is going to pay for it because they're the Japanese postal uh, pension fund will invest in American securities. There you go. We won't pay for it. We're never going to pay for it. As long as interest rates are if interest rates skyrocket, then that the whole dynamic changes. But as long as interest rates are zero, we won't. Which they are pretty much right now. Yeah, I wish they are. So right. now in the last episode, we talked about the stimulus payments to the individuals. You coined the term Trump bucks. I thought maybe we, you should have put a trademark on that because I noticed a lot of people on social media were using it after the fact. So it seemed as though the amounts stayed the same. The income thresholds stayed the same. Are you satisfied? I think I know your answer to this. Are you satisfied with what was passed in the CARES Act, or do you wish there was more, more dollar amounts per person, per, per person, or should the income thresholds have been more? Um, I, I think everybody should have received Trump bucks. Um, I think the people who had more income than the Trump bucks allowed should have received Trump bucks. Uh, I don't think there should have been any cutoff. And I think they should have did the way I view it is every, you know, for every month that the quarantine's in effect, Trump bucks get distributed. You know, everybody with a social security number gets a Trump buck, like every U S citizen, uh, based on, you know, whatever the formula. Um, because in my mind, here's the thing, right? It's not necessarily a welfare benefit. If the government tells me I can't go and work and the government orders that, then the government should compensate compensate me for some way, right? The way I think through Trump bucks and the stimulus dollars is if I have a, a grocery store or no, a restaurant on a road, okay? And the government says we're shutting down that road for eight weeks because we have to repair it. But we're gonna compensate you for the time that that restaurant is shut down by giving you some average of your revenue. Um, that's totally fair because the government ordered me to close, but in exchange, they're giving me restitution. The same with Trump bucks. The, the U.S. federal government and the state's governments order people not to work. They have to give us some form of restitution. So, yeah, Trump bucks for everybody. I, well, I'm not going to say about personal Trump bucks, <laughs> but, yeah, we need more Trump bucks. Yeah, so I, I agree. I mean, on the last episode, I talked about how I typically wouldn't be in favor of something like this just because of the financial impact on the economy. However, governments, the federal and the state governments, caused the recession that we're going to be in and forced at least 10 million plus people probably going to be closer to 20 million when this is all said and done 20 million people if more if not more to go on unemployment and the government you call you used a, a good term restitution i think that's a good way of describing it. They, they have to provide these means to keep the economy going in some way shape or form now I don't know how true this is. In one press conference when this was passed, Trump had mentioned that those individuals who are on unemployment, a vast majority of them are going to be essentially receiving 100% their wages or their salaries were for the next four months. So I'm, I'm of the belief, and I could be wrong about this, that maybe, maybe I'm too hopeful with this, that the economy might not be as badly hurt when we get out of this. Because people are going to be able to maintain, hopefully, close to what they were earning in the past. Um, you have businesses that ha are going to have these loans that are going to be forgiven. And that, that could be worth millions of dollars for a number 
businesses across the country. We're talking 350 billion right now that the program offered. I saw Rubio today tweeted that they're looking at an additional $250 billion. So that's a significant amount of money that is also going to be used to keep people employed. So if we could get out of this in that next eight week stretch, people hopefully financially aren't nearly as bad off. I mean, they're going to still be receiving unemployment or they're going to be receiving, they're going to still be employed. And then my hope is at the, it's the summertime, people will want to go out. Hopefully they spend money. I do think in some respects, people are going to be hesitant to go maybe to certain restaurants. I know just personally, I know my wife is going to be extremely hesitant. I know my wife's watching and uh, I hope she doesn't mind me saying that, but she's, she's very freaked out by this. And I know a number of other people are too. Um, so those are just some initial thoughts. I, yeah, I mean... No, no, no. I'm, oh, sorry. I'm going to cut you off, ahead. Michael. Uh, again, I think that, you know, the short-term Trump bucks plug the hole, but the long-term, there are going to be shifts to consumer preferences, and those shifts to consumer preferences will mean some areas of the economy get destroyed. Um, I had another point I was about to make. And my brother, Chris, just literally just chimed in, and, and he's talking about travel industry, airlines, restaurants, and retail. I think a few of those, especially retail, I think is going to be retail, which has been fragile to begin with in recent years, especially brick and mortar yeah. retail, how that's going to recover, how um, malls like Simon Property Group, one of the biggest in the entire country, I saw they're furloughing about 30% of their workforce. This is a lot of these, the retail sector is very fragile and not being, having the ability to have sales for essentially two months. I mean, outside of online sales, I think it, it could really put the uh, nail in the coffin for some, some, some businesses in the retail sector. So I think that one maybe is the most fragile of all of them. I think people are still going to eat. Obviously people could still take out right now, uh, do take out. And I think a lot of people are willing to support local restaurants. It sounds like the airlines got a bailout in the cares act. And they were doing fairly well before this, to be quite honest with you. Travel industry, I think hotels are really hurting right now. I, I've heard some that I think a couple of hotels in downtown Cleveland have completely closed down right now because their occupancy rate was in the single digits, which is just something you would never hear of. But when you have businesses that you're forced to stay at home, right. nobody's traveling, you're not going to have business people going and doing business Um on the road and you're not going to have people traveling to your city for whatever reason for tourism purposes. So I, I think retail and hotels could be the most at risk right now. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I think what the big issue though is that it's permanently altering people's preferences, right? Like in business travel has been curtailed. And I think a lot of that won't come back because people will be doing zoom meetings like what we're doing right now. Right. It's going to take up uh, business travel, restaurants, people will be cooking at home. And again, it's not that everybody does this, but there's just a shift at the margin. And, you know, the marginal shifts have huge implications. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I um, will see is all I can say, basically, on the economy. I mean, I'm, I'm not very optimistic. Now, have you been surprised here. with how the market has rebounded. I think today when I was listening to CNBC, it's up 25% off the lows or 20% off the lows uh, from three weeks ago. Now, do you think this is artificial or, or do you well, think there's something to that? So here's the scary thing. 
here's the scary thing, um, and this goes to the market. What's the big problem in the American economy? In my opinion, the big problem in the American economy is that workers' wages relative to capital have declined, right? And large conglomerates, large companies hold too much power relative to medium and small size companies. And they're able to exploit that power by driving down wages and you know driving up profits for themselves, right? So the big problem to me is not capitalism, right? We don't need to go and, and nationalize various sectors of the economy. The big problem is that we have monopolies or oligarchies, right? Or oligopolies, excuse me, where you have two or three firms that essentially control the market and they cartelize it. Okay, well, how does this have to do with, what does this have to do with Corona? So here's the important thing with Corona. The big companies can get access to capital. The big companies are using this as an opportunity to do M&A. So, you know, I, I, everybody's in chaos in my industry. I get a loan from the government and I use that money to stabilize my own company, number one, but then start acquiring medium and small size companies, number two. And the worst outcome, and this is what I'm most afraid of, is it leads to further consolidation in the U.S. economy, where big companies get bigger, small companies go out of business, and it literally becomes Amazon, Walmart, and Microsoft, right, running the entire economy. Obviously, I'm exaggerating, but, but you get the point. So going back to the market, well, the, the Dow Jones uh, is what? 100 companies, 50 companies, I don't, I don't know the exact amount. It's, it's the largest companies in the U.S. economy, right? It's the top 50. It's the top 100. I think it's 100. Um, those guys will do well. I think the, their, their stock prices will go back up. They're getting easy access to capital. They can take out loans from the government at zero or close to 0% interest rates. They're going to do fine. The stock market, I think, actually should stabilize and recover. I'm, I'm kind of semi-bullish on the stock market. I'm just not completely, maybe I'm, I'm not completely bearish. But the big problem is the real economy, Main Street, Ma and Pa. That's where I think the big risk is. Like, you know, Bob owns a gym, right? Planet Fitness is going to be able to get the loans. But Bob's gym, he can't get the, the bank won't, you know, pick up his phone call because he's trying to get that capital. And Bob goes out of business and Planet Fitness just consolidates. That's the big so, risk. Yeah. So you talked about something. In my opinion. Um, with mergers and acquisitions. That, I think it's a, it's a fundamental flaw with capitalism. And I'm not here to beat up on capitalism too much. But I think of like telecommunications, cell phones. You've got what? Um, Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile, Sprint. What, we're down to four. Think of airlines. We used to have Continental, yeah. U.S. Airways. Um, uh, who else? American West. I'm trying to think of all the big ones. Now we're we're really down to three legacy airlines: United, yeah. Delta, American, and then you have the additional ones that those are the more hub and spoke model. And then you have the other items, uh, other airlines like Southwest, JetBlue, Spirit, Allegiant, Frontier. But you've allowed for these major industries to get to a point where there's only maybe four major ones. And, and that is a concern of me of mine that I have related to what we're going to see take place. You're going to have some fragile companies, whereas there might be another company who's on better footing, who's going to have the ability to say, Hey, you're, you're struggling right now. Let's, let's, let's purchase. I'm, we're going to, we're going to acquire you. And, uh, I guess it might be hard for the regulators to say, no, there might be an issue with monopolies here with this entire company could, could 
completely flop. Obviously, this is more your forte than it is mine. So let's go back to the idea of bailouts, right? Everybody hates bailouts. We're giving everybody bailouts again, right? I hate bailouts. You hate bailouts. Bailouts. But why are we giving out so many bailouts? Well, it's because of the consolidation of ver in various sectors in our economy, right? If you had a situation in which there were 100 companies and 10 of them go bankrupt, whatever that sector is, if it's widget manufacturing, it's not going to end, right? And there's no reason to do a bailout. You say, we'll lose 10 out of the 100 widget manufacturers, but America's still going to make widgets. If you have three widget manufacturers and one of them goes bankrupt, then that's a third of your widget manufacturing, right? And then it's like, well, you know, you might not like bailouts, but do you really want a third of this economy to go perhaps permanently? Same was, the same was true with the automobile companies, right? We used to have a far more automobile companies in the United States. Over time, it consolidated to the big three, Chrysler, Ford, and GM. And then when GM and Chrysler went bankrupt, the question was, if you don't bail them out, you're, only gonna have, you're not going to have an auto industry, right? So it's either bail everybody out or the industry goes away. Same with the airlines. The airlines go away, et cetera. So the way we fight and be proactive against bailouts is by active anti-monopoly enforcement, um, anti active trust busting, et cetera. I, I really believe that. And the big risk of coronavirus is, once again, I'm repeating myself, but that big companies, they get access to all these loans and they swallow up the little guys and we see even more consolidation. You know, Amazon.com, everybody likes to celebrate Amazon, but I think Amazon has a malicious influence in the economy because it's just essentially consolidating all of retail and it's going to be Walmart versus Amazon. I don't think that's a world we want to be in. Um, so, you know, that's, so, that's the big fear. Uh, I haven't seen any new questions. If anybody has any questions, by all means, keep posting them. I may have missed some. So another thing I want to mention is, and, and we've talked about this uh, privately through a text message and Facebook, is I guess the relative ease of our government to be able to, to essentially shut down the entire economy, how easy it was. My concern is, and, and I use the term slippery slope last episode, is now we know how easy it is. If this thing flares up again in the fall, are they going to do this? Then we have a, a general election, a presidential election in November. What's going to happen there? Because the concern that I'm hearing is from the experts that they do expect that this is going to come back in the fall. Obviously, November is right at the start of that. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Because that, that's a major concern for me. Okay, so a couple of things. Every two years, we go through a pandemic of sorts, right? This year, it's corona, but we've also had Ebola. We had uh, swine flu. Uh, there was SARS. There was bird flu. Um, there was a West Nile virus. Anybody remember that? That was an old one. Um, so every, every couple of years, we have a virus, right? The virus has an outbreak, and there's a you know, everybody tries that quickly. Corona, we weren't able to stop it in time because the Chinese lied. And I'll get to that in a moment. China, that's another topic we need to talk about the Chinese. Um, there's always the risk of pandemic. And, and listen, the pan pandemic risk is very real. You know, there's humanity is vulnerable to like another bubonic plague or a plague of Justinian, right? That comes and kills a third of our population. So I think we got lucky that coronavirus is a more severe variant of the flu, but it's not the bubonic plague, right? But we won't always get lucky. 
So I recognize the need for a governor or an executive figure to be able to say like, hey, we have to shut it all down to protect the people. That's a decision that I think I'm fully comfortable with governors having that power. The point I made on Facebook a couple of days ago, and I'll, I'll make it again now, is in order to continue that power, in order to continue any sort of shutdown or quarantine, it has to go to a legislature. And the reason why is you're blending two functions of government, right? One function of government's uh, deliberative. The other is acting with uh, urgency and dispatch, right? We need government to act quickly, but we also need government to act smartly. The governor acts quickly after three weeks. If he wants to extend the quarantine, he has to put it to the legislature and the legislature should be able to vote. Yeah, we'll keep it going or no, we need to end it now. Um, if people are dropping dead by the, you know, the thousands, a legislature is not going to end a quarantine. They're going to keep it going, even if the cost is, is high. Uh, so in my mind, we've given all this power to the government. And the problem isn't so much the power per se, but there's absolutely no check whatsoever on this power. Um, and I think we need to formalize our emergency procedures where, again, it should be up for a legislative oversight. And I don't think that that's that extreme to call for legislative oversight. That is, I, I think, the way you blend the two. Government should have the power to call police state, but it should be temporary, limited, and the goal should be yeah, I like the idea of in the mix. Great example of that. We discussed it on the last episode. It was my issues with how the Ohio primary election on St. Patrick's Day was handled and how essentially DeWine just said, we're just going to cancel it. We're, we're going to postpone it or reschedule it, despite the fact that a judge in Franklin County said, no, you're not allowed to do this. He just goes ahead and, and does it anyways, essentially based on or by means of a health emergency from Dr. Amy Acton. We could argue that in the future if that was worth it or not. But the fact is, the legislature sets the date. So if you want to do something like that, like in this particular instance, they knew the election was coming up, and they were instituting these various bans, whether it be with the, the restaurants or the stay-at-home. Call an emergency session of the Ohio legislature. Make them aware of this. Call them in. I mean, they're all within a three-and-a-half-hour drive of Columbus. Call them in. They could, they could come within right. 12 hours' notice. Work something out and reschedule. Don't just say with a, with a, with a with a signature, we're going to cancel. We're going to reschedule this election. And that that's extremely concerning, and it sets a dangerous precedent for future elections or future things that impact our our lives through through the government. Well, what's interesting to me is what I don't get, right, is I remember 2001 in the debate over the Patriot Act and the, the war on terror and all that. And everybody anti-Bush was like, you know, Bush is a fascist. He's going to cancel the election. He's building a police state, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Trump gets elected. Trump is a fascist. Trump is a dictator. He's, a, he's an orange Mussolini, right? Like he's a tin pot dictator, et cetera. And then the very next breath, they're like, let's call an indefinite quarantine which is like de facto it's like a softer version of martial law right uh yeah you know trump is a fascist dictator and uh you know but he should have all the power in the world and we should arrest people if they so much as like look outside a window because we have to flatten the curve and oh the curve is getting flatter well we need to flatten it harder if a single person dies or even coughs and we failed and we need to you know arrest trump but before we arrest him 
for being a, a, a puppet of Putin. We need to give him complete and total power over the U.S. economy. It's like, what the, what the fuck, right? Like, pick a side, right? This is like the other thing. People are like, the police are institutionally racist. The police, every police officer is just institutionally racist. These police are so evil. I hate the police, man. And then the next breath are like, the only people that should have guns are the police. It's like, but wait a minute. If you truly, like, if I truly believe the police, you know, were, were quasi-fascists ready to crack down on me, I wouldn't want them to be the only people armed. If I truly believe that like Donald Trump was like 10 seconds away from going full on Francisco Franco and like locking down the country and installing authoritarian dictatorship, I would not want him to have the power to call an indefinite quarantine. Right? Like, I don't know. I don't know. That's just me. That's just me. But I don't, I don't know. I'm crazy. We talked about how easy it was for them to do this in the right now, March do you envision this happening again in the fall? I guess the biggest issue at hand is we don't have a vaccine. So that's at least a year to 18 months out. I, I, I. But who cares? But who cares? But, but who cares? Because here's the thing, right? They, they've moved the goalposts. The goal shouldn't be that nobody dies. The goal shouldn't be that hospitalization rise. The goal was we have to implement these drastic measures because we don't want the hospital system to get overloaded. There's an X number of, of ventilators. Usage is going to go like this, and we have to flatten the curve so people don't use the ventilators, right? Okay, I get that. I totally understand that, right? There are clear constraints. The goal should not be, well, you know, it could come back in the fall. Yeah, it's going to come back in the fall. So is the flu and so other diseases, right? Are we going to – we're going to – quarantine we should have our shit together by then and the capacity like that dotted line that shows how many ventilators it should be all the way up to here and we should be able to deal with a higher level of infections that was the justification and everybody has conveniently forgotten about why we've shut down the entire economy it was to deal with hospital to prevent the hospital system from becoming overloaded um that's it. It's not to like stop the spread of the virus. It's to stop this, delay the spread of the virus so the host, so that the hospital system doesn't become overloaded. The virus is gonna, it's here, right? Everybody is not gonna get vaccinated. I'm, I'm just trying to let you know that now. And if they get vaccinated, it'll last for six months and a new variant's gonna appear. The whole purpose has to be to prevent hospital systems from becoming overloaded. And if we're nowhere near that bad now, right? When it's peak season, we won't be in the fall. So they should not, I, in my opinion, and again, I'm not a doctor, I'm just a regular U.S. citizen, so discount this as you may, but there shouldn't be more quarantines if, if it's not no, set I think to that's, overload that's, our hospital that's a system. Point. So, again, as people are tuning in, by all means, any questions you have, we're open to anything. We, pretty much the main questions we've asked thus far have all been from all of you. So, I yeah, absolutely. No, go ahead. No, no. Can we'll, we talk, talk Chinese? Chinese? Sorry, Michael. Go ahead. Well, so here's the other thing, right? Like I posted this a couple of days ago. I got some pushback. People said there was a racist point. And, you know, I, my point was like, is every time somebody in China decides to eat a bat, we have to shut down. We have to take a 30% hit to GDP and we have to stay locked in for three months, right? Like, is that the new normal? That's fucking stupid if it is. I mean, there's no other way to put it. I know that's not the most articulate language. And sorry, because this is a PG-13 podcast. But if it's if literally our entire economy is hostage because someone in China decides to eat a bat, and oh, that's that's racist, you know? Well, no, no, 
the literal explanation of this, there are two possible explanations. One is somebody ate food from a wet market where they have all these exotic animals. We know there's high virus levels and in, in counts and bats and similar animals. They ate one of those and it crossed into human infection, right? That's theory number one. That's the actual theory for what's happening. Theory number two is that it leaked from the Wuhan bio lab, right? But we don't want to go there because that's like too conspiratorial. So all I'm saying is if 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 this is this is the reality now that our entire society is hostage to the chinese then we need to either not be hostage to the chinese or have a clear system defined in place before we shut everything down um I, in preference i think this shows you could be the biggest trump hater on the planet right you could think he's a total idiot moron but you know what he was 100 percent right about that people including the experts laughed at him that we are way too dependent on China. We never should have been this dependent upon China. I used to be a big free trader, right? I, I used the Cato handbook as my Bible. Free trade has brought us nothing but personal, our, our, our communities being destroyed, families being, you know, immiserated economically, and China having us in complete, you know, China having us in the palm of their hands. I mean, we have an $18 trillion economy, and 19, well, we had an $18 trillion economy, and we can't even secure ventilators. We can't even secure masks. We have to have little old ladies sew masks because we don't have the manufacturing capacity. What the F is wrong with that? So, you know, make fun of Trump all you want, but all the elite experts were like, free trade is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And, oh, it doesn't matter if we outsource every single factory to China. Don't worry, we'll be able to consume more cheap plastic crap. Well, guess what? Now we're effed, right? So he was right about that issue. Um, and the entire Republican Party and the entire bipartisan establishment was wrong. He and Peter Navarro, another great American, uh, total patriot, called this completely. So, so we're so getting some there, comments. I'm going to get off my soapbox. The sorry, uh, epic troll that he is said, don't hate if you haven't uh, tried eating a bat yet. So apparently he's done that. It sounds like something you would probably get at Susie's Ducks and Drafts. They have like the cockroaches or whatever you can put on top of your hot dog. So um, maybe they have like a bat hot dog. So that's the first thing. Uh, second thing, you brought up a point about our over-reliance on China. We talked about this last episode. I think it's something that there should be clear bipartisan support on is identifying the critical supply chain in our country, whether it's uh, health supplies or uh, military supplies, energy supplies, those types of things, and have laws in place that, again, I'm not saying the government needs to control things, but if you're relying on the government for incentives, loans, those types of things, it prevents you from doing those things overseas. I think that's fair. If if you know if you're not relying on the government, you know we government can't necessarily stop you. But a lot of these businesses that are doing these things overseas, I guarantee you, are finding means to stay afloat right now, and are going to be using the government to do just that. To, to stay afloat, which is which is something that again they should have written in these loan agreements that no, this must stop. Well, I think the solution was what Trump was doing with the tariffs on the Chinese, right? Like that was the brilliant solution. You have the right to build a factory in China, but when you export that product to the United States, you have to pay a tax, right? It's not banned. But you just have to pay a tax. That to me is the most elegant solution. It, you know, a 15%, maybe 20% across the board tariff on China and other hostile nations. Um, we, we, we never should have let China join the World Trade Organization. This is my big bugaboo. Um, 
presidents from both sides of the aisle. This isn't a Republican thing. This isn't a Democrat thing. This is the bipartisan political establishment outsourced our industrial base, and we got nothing in return but uh, coronavirus, right? And, and I'm not, look, the dumb argument is, the very low IQ argument is, you're, you're racist against the Chinese because you said the Chinese eat bats. Yeah, on average, Chinese people are more likely to eat bats than your typical, say, American citizen, right? We're talking about, you know, averages, right? I'm, I'm sure there are Americans out there that eat bats. Ozzy Osbourne eats bats. But the wet markets are a thing in China. They're not a bunch of a problem in the United States. And if the wet markets are a strong vector for diseases, then yeah, it's a big, it's a big effing problem, right? Uh, I didn't say the F word because Tommy said I get the more you know per PG thirteen movie. So, um, also, Kurt Blackburn is a really good. Uh, he's a really good comment. Kurt he's, is uh, a, uh, a fellow coworker, CPA at. I just want to give a shout workplace, out. Who's so. this guy? He would be is he a, a millennial. Is he a millennial? He's probably. I think he's late thirties. He's he, but he is oh, he's wow. one of us. So. Real quick oh, wow. point. I don't know if you saw, not to get overly political here, but this is a political podcast. Are we surprised with how the media in this country has, Yeah, let's get. I don't want to say taking a liking, but believes everything at face value that the Chinese propaganda machine, their media is putting out, such as today. So NBC had tweeted out, U.S. reports 1,264 coronavirus deaths over the past 24 hours. Meanwhile, in China where the pandemic broke out, not a single new coronavirus death was reported. Not sure what the point they're trying to get across. Um, you know, it could be an indirect shot at Trump, but it's just surprising to me that they take what the Chinese are saying at face value. Because if we look, take a step back here, do we honestly think a country of over a billion people had just 80,000 cases of this when this thing has spread from a couple hundred cases six weeks ago in this country to whatever we're at now, 100, I don't even know, or what are we at, right? Uh, 395,000 cases in this country. Do we really believe that the Chinese are telling the truth? And then we have the media in this country pushing this out there No, for whatever point they're trying to make? No, I mean, the Chinese are clearly lying. I mean, that's not even a question, right? The Chinese are lying. We know the Chinese are lying. Um, there was a classified briefing, and Tom Kahn, the senator from Arkansas, afterwards said that, like, yeah, we have evidence that the Chinese are lying, that both infection rate and death rates are far higher than let, 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 that they have let on. They lied to the World Health Organization, where they denied human-to-human um, -human transmission. Uh, the World Health Organization is completely covered for the Chinese. Uh, so not only, you know, if, if it, there's an outbreak in China, that's not a sin on China. The problem is the response to the outbreak, that they continue to be deceitful and lie about it. And they, you know, when the World Health Organization in January and in February is saying there's no human to human transmission, late February, this is not a pandemic. It prevents other governments from organizing and responding in time. And the reason why the World Health Organization delayed all these important calls was because they were either being fed false information by the Chinese or the Chinese were lying. Part of the reason for the hysteria, right, is because we were making the calculation, here's the total amount of deaths, right, the numerator, and the denominator is the total infections. And the Chinese were lying about the true extent of the infections because they wanted to show that they contained it. So that artificially boosted 
the death rate in terms of the fatality rate, which caused everybody to panic, right? This goes back to my earlier point. Had the Chinese said, actually, this has spread a lot further than we realized, we weren't able to contain it. 10 million people are infected and you know, 10,000 have died. That looks a lot different from 1,000 died, 10,000 infected, right? The ratios change. Um, so yeah, the, the Chinese lied and Americans died. And I, it's a big problem with the regime, the Chinese regime. You know, I don't want to say they're an enemy of the United States, but they're certainly not a friend of the United States. Um, and, and I think we need to, to recognize this. You know, we can attack Trump all we want and beat him up, but let's at least have the next president of the United States, whoever he may be, um, realize that we should no, no so longer be doing business in Chinese cities that we are. To my point about them claiming they only had 80,000 cases. So there's a great website. It's called worlddometers.info, which has been tracking the coronavirus on a country-by-country -country basis. Great charts and information on there. On, on their website for the Chinese, it has a single day, February 12th, where there were 14,000 new cases reported in a single day. A week later, seven days later, February 19th, only 391. They had a day where they, they reported 14,000 cases. The next day, five thousand. Every other day, it was under four thousand dollars. Four thousand, not four thousand dollars. Four thousand cases, and it just fizzled out to virtually nothing by looks like March six. There's my brother Tom says it best. Numbers China is reporting do not agree with how mathematics work. It's a hundred percent. Maybe they're using common core uh, math over there. I'm not sure what they're they're doing, but it's clearly you can't rely on their numbers. Another question that came in was from my brother Chris, and this kind of may go to your point about the World Health Organization. Where does the buck stop with the testing debacle? And I think it goes back to this issue of the Chinese not being open and, and transparent with the situation in that country. And quite frankly, we still don't know the situation in that country. We heard how sporting events and they were going, um, opening their economy back up, and then there's reports now that they're shutting things down again. Well, if they're shutting things down again and they're supposedly reporting no deaths of the day, something's not quite adding up here, folks, not adding up whatsoever. So if they were more transparent with the World Health Organization and with the, the world itself, I think the U.S. could have done a better job of preparing. But to his question, where does the buck stop with the testing debacle? I mean, if you, I guess the buck stop, or, uh, goes to the top with, with, with Trump. But I'm not sure you could entirely throw it on him in this particular case because I don't think you could really fault any one person because the information just wasn't clear and concise and complete to make an informed judgment as to how to best address this. Um, I think if you fault Trump, right? Um... Another could somebody who's Anthony Morphy feeling to say, Oh yeah. Fifty He wants to play tonight? some Call What's of Duty tonight. Bacon? I don't understand what that means. I will say real real quick yeah, and we could do that real oh, quick okay. point. I will we'll have to wrap one, this up one soon. perk of this whole quarantine has it yeah. has been a nice ability to get all of my some of my cousins on my mom's side of the family together to play Xbox every night and to bring my brothers together to play Xbox every night. So um, we're enjoying playing Call of Duty every night, so I might be able to fit that in a few games tonight after this episode concludes. That's really cute. Um, 
that's adorable, Michael. I'm, I'm glad we can bring the family together. No, so I think Trump, the biggest fault I put on Trump has been the rhetoric. I think he was slow to ramp up the rhetoric early on. Um, I think he was concerned about damaging the stock market. And he was a little too flippant to begin with. He kind of veered from being very flippant to being over overly reacting. But in terms of the testing debacle, the testing capacity, I think, is more of a problem of America's institutional paralysis, right? And this is not me trying to excuse Trump, but I'm just, if you, I think it's a function of two things. One, we had bad data coming from the World Health Organization. Don't forget, it wasn't until I think March 11th, correct me if I'm wrong on that, that the World Health Organization declared coronavirus as a pandemic. But number two, I encourage you guys to look up the FDA and the CDC. They were having turf battles over who got to approve the testing kits. And there was a huge bureaucratic um, institutional uh, molasses hurdles, right, that stopped these testing kits from coming to the market very quickly because, you know, everybody was arguing who had the final say in approving and stuff like that. So uh, I think that, you know, Trump hasn't been blameless in all this. But I, I, I think that the, and ultimately, every, the buck stops with the president. That's just the reality of the ground. But I do think that the testing capacity issue is more of a problem of the institutional blow in the United States. There have been a lot of dumb arguments against Trump. One of them was like he cut the CDC budget. The CDC budget hasn't gone down. The CDC budget's gone like up over time. Um, the other was that he cut like this pandemic responsiveness department at the NSA. And he just, he like consolidated some of the bureaucracy. And I, I think that at the root of these criticisms is this naive, naive belief, if only we spent a billion more dollars, or if only we had a few more bureaucrats, right? Like we wouldn't be in the situation we're in now, which is just, it's kind of naive and silly. Um, I don't know if anybody's dealt with the federal government, but a lack of resources is not one of its chief problems, right? It's, it's not why the US didn't react. Um, if you look at the Western world, France, Spain, Italy, et cetera, they've all been hit really hard. Uh, and Trump wasn't the president of any of those countries. So I don't know. I just think that people are trying to make political points out of it. And they're acting like Trump is personally like infecting people. And um, I give him a B, you know, a C plus B minus. So before we conclude, I do want to give when a it's all said and done. surprise compliment to, to Joe Biden. In on Meet the Press the other day, Chuck Todd, someone who I've criticized a number of times and someone I just... I'm not a, I just do not, uh, I guess, support or do, I do not care for his style and someone who I feel is, is far from a Tim Russert who I had a lot of respect for. Chuck Todd asked the question if, if President Trump has blood on his hands for the way this is handled. And I just thought it was just so beneath the belt. It was just uncalled for. And to Joe Biden's um, credit, he he said that's just taking it way too far. And I think there's going to be a time to look back and evaluate how certain politicians handled this crisis from Governor DeWine, did he go too far, to President Trump, his rhetoric, and, and how he handled things from a federal level. Because we could have a whole episode on the whole idea of how our government works, where we have 50 sovereign states that ultimately are best know how to handle the, the issues of those particular states, and you have a federal government where Trump's been hesitant to 
wave a magic wand and say, you all need to do this. You all need to do that. Um, and of course, like often happens every episode, uh, I lose my train of thought. So I'm not sure where. Well, well, let me let me kind of wrap it up and say this. Joe Biden has dementia. Okay, folks, Joe Biden has dementia. He's losing his, uh, his mind. Joe Biden is like, I took a Ritz cracker and I dropped it in water, right? And as each day in his campaign, that Ritz cracker dissolves more and more and more. Uh, oh, thank you, Shanley. Joe Biden... Uh, is falling apart, and I don't like. I grade Trump like a, a B minus right now. I think when it's all said and done, a B response because I do think that he got his shit together in the middle of March, and the federal government's been acting pretty competently and getting things to the you know the places uh, that they need. But Joe Biden, Joe Biden doesn't even know where he is. Like people, are you fucking kidding me right now? First of all, Joe Biden has no core ideology. He has no core beliefs. Joe Biden, his, his entire family is completely intertwined with the Chinese. Joe Biden is weak on China. The big fundamental problem of coronavirus is that we outsource our manufacturing base to China, right? And Joe Biden is the guy that's like, his, his children are all like tied up with the Chinese. So as, as bad as Trump is, and I, again, I don't think Trump has done that bad. I don't think it's been perfect, but I don't think it's been that bad. I don't know how anybody can seriously say, ah, if only Joe Biden were in office, right? he'd be able to solve this problem. Joe Biden wouldn't even remember like where he is. Joe Biden would be like wandering the White House lawn. Uh, I don't know. That's, I want to rant about Joe Biden before we end the episode because I just, I think it's, I feel bad for the man that his family is putting him up to yeah. running. So one last point on that. He's, My brother Chris sent me a clip from the and, Joe Rogan podcast yeah. of him and Representative Crenshaw from Texas talking about Biden and and, and Joe Rogan essentially said, I'm going to support Trump over Biden. And his rationale was, like what you're, you're saying, it's unfortunate, but he's, he's losing it in the head. His cognitive abilities are in decline. And it's, it's completely evident. And Rogan uses the, the, the analogy, the Democrats are trying to sweep it under the rug. And I, and I think that's the great way of looking at it. I mean, if you look at it objectively, like... I, I, Joe Biden's a decent person in terms of his personality. I'm not saying to the core of his politics and how he is. I, I think you can make an argument that he's shady. But how the Democrats, how the media can allow this to happen, it's, it's mind-boggling. I think they're giving a gift to Trump and the Republicans because the more you hear Biden talk, it just leaves you scratching your head and thinking, this is the person they're going to throw out there? Go back four years ago. They threw Hillary Clinton out there, one of the most unpopular human beings in America, and it cost them the election. And now they're going to throw somebody else out there. I think they're trying to overthink these things. And there's this again, this over reliance on these polls early on. Like, oh, Trump's so beatable. Trump's so beatable. When you put the two mid seventy year olds on the stage, there's going to be a stark contrast, and it's going to be abundantly clear to everyone. Yeah. So presidential elections are picked between two candidates at the end of the day, right? The choice is between Trump and Biden. Um, and I don't know how anybody can seriously make the argument Biden would have done a better job. 
especially in the state that he is in now, if he were dealing with the same exact federal bureaucracy, I think it would turn out exactly the same or worse, right? It, it, and, and to me, you know, come November, we're going to have this crisis dealt with. We're going to move on from Corona. But what we're not going to have dealt with is the fundamental issue, and that is America's reliance on China. And on that issue, it's slam dunk for Donald Trump, right? Because Joe Biden doesn't take it seriously. He is bought, sold, and paid for by the Chicoms, or at least his, his family is. Um, his son was like doing business with like a Chinese billion dollar uh, venture capital fund. I'll have to pull it all up. Uh, so the you know he has no plan to get tough on China, right? He has no, he has nothing to do with China. So I think it, you know as we conclude as we we think about the Corona crisis, at the end of the day, it's a, it's it's a choice between you know Trump, who you might not like, who might be vulgar, versus Joe Biden, who doesn't even know how many grandkids he has. And, you know, I just want to say this is going to be a really hot take. I actually find Hillary in many ways more admirable than Joe Biden. Um, At least Hillary knows how many grandkids she has. Joe doesn't. Like, Chelsea Clinton is by all accounts a well-adjusted human being, despite all the craziness. And to that, you have to give some credit to the parents. But Joe Biden's son, not the one that passed away from cancer, who, who seemed to be a decent guy, but the other one, Hunter Biden, is by all accounts a crackhead sleazeball, right? And, you know, kids turn out all sorts of ways. But if you raise a son who's a crackhead and that same crackhead son, like, impregnates a stripper and then cheats on your brother's wife with his widow and, you know, does all these morally horrible things it, it calls into question so i do want to say put that i think uh, this was a great idea on dane's part to have this streaming online i i enjoyed it it's nice to get the audience interactive and make Thank it you. where it's less just me and you rambling and to kind of get some interaction from our listeners i will say this to everyone who's tuning in on facebook and watching or who's going to be listening to our podcast again please subscribe not only are we on, we're on all the big ones now. So we're on Apple Podcasts, where we got I think 10, 10 um, ratings, all ten, all five stars. So we got that going for us. We're on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and the biggest new one, we're on iHeartRadio. So if you if you go to the iHeartRadio app, search NB Red Podcast, we're there. So you can subscribe. So um, just encourage everybody to please go ahead and subscribe, like us on Facebook as well, and in the future. Um, we'll probably do some more of these types of things, but I, I definitely want to have the audience more interactive, maybe bringing some of them on for some podcasts and um, yeah. Anything else you want to, you want to add before we conclude? I, I think, I think the video was a huge success and major props to you. Um, Michael for organizing it get feedback from your uh, goofy brothers and uh, let me know what they think and uh, I think this was a, well, it was your great idea. success and, you, uh, you organized just it say also full credit 15 to minutes you. before this and post, uh, I'll see the plan uh, was for us to use a certain sort of zoom which everybody's probably using right now because you're quarantined and self-distancing and it wasn't working out as planned so uh, last minute I found this other option which worked out actually fairly well for us and it's something I could definitely use in the future because I could 
add more than two people on this with relative ease. So we'll have to keep that in mind. But fortunately, it all worked out in the end. So um, my brother Chris is wanting us to end this. we got to cut this short so we could play Call of Duty. So thank everybody for listening. Again, subscribe, like us on Facebook, and uh, we'll see you next time on episode 11. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye, Chris. Or-